Welcome. This is By Design on RN. Fenella Kernerbone is my name. Great to have your company. Today, why World War I trenches were designed the way they were and how did Brisbane score a gallery along the river? Well, they were cold, dark and unbearably miserable. How were trenches in World War I made and how did their design impact on Australian soldiers? A famous river that nobody wants to swim in anymore. Why not pop a pool in it? Would you swim in the River Thames? And we also take a look at why one building in Brisbane is one of the most celebrated examples of brutalist architecture in Australia. The cement used in doing all of the concrete, and there's a gigantic amount of concrete, is off-wide. Unlike grey, a lot of brutalist buildings, most of them have used grey cement, which ages fairly badly and looks gloomy and dirty and things. But the off-white cement here is reflective and lively and, and does work extremely well. We're talking about Robin Gibson's rather fab Queensland art gallery. We are going to be taking you there very soon here on By Design. Now, it is 100 years this year since World War I began, and we have been commemorating it uh, already, of course, on our end throughout the year. And since I was very little, I have been horrified and, yes, gripped by the stories of trench warfare on the Western Front. And it's partly because of the stories I heard about my own grandfather, who survived, but like so many men and women, was affected by his experiences for life in World War I. And it wasn't until the First World War that fixed trench warfare became standard. And many trenches still exist today. They're now scattered over these former battlefields and some are now quite beautiful memorials. But back then, trenches created a hellish living environment. Dark, cold, stagnant, under constant threat of attack and many other health risks. Designed and built, usually under extreme duress. I caught up with historian Brad Manera, who is the executive manager of the Anzac Memorial Park in Hyde Park in Sydney, which was built by Charles Bruce DeLitt in 1932. It was built when the state was in mourning for the 120,000 of its sons and daughters who served overseas and one in five, one in four of them who didn't come home, who lie beneath foreign fields and all of them who returned with physical or mental scars from that war. This is an interesting place too because you know, obviously we have the memorial which is an Art Deco design and you know there's ibises all around here. We're in front of a, a pond, you know, in front of the memorial, kids on skateboards, you name it. It's sort of a, a mixed use area, I suppose. Very, very much so. I guess in the 30s it was a place, hopefully, of silent contemplation. I guess because of the disappearing significance of war to the community in Sydney and, and beyond. We're, we're seeing the, the park treated probably with less respect than was intended. That's just the nature of the park and, I guess, of the way we remember and respect the impact of the war. Which leads me to why I wanted to talk to you today. I was flicking through some magazines recently and obviously we're commemorating 100 years since the start of World War I and of course Australia's involvement in, in that. And, and what really struck me was seeing 
how the trenches, the site of such sorrow and hardship and, and violence in some of these places, in one place in particular, could look so beautiful today, memorials, but yet so attractive and also attract tourism. Sure. Look, I think you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a fascination with old battlefields, whether it's Waterloo or the battlefields of the Western Front. And clearly the thing that we remember, that, that visual image of the Western Front that is burned into our consciousness is that of the parallel lines of trenches that stretched from the Swiss border to the North Sea and a killing field that produced millions of casualties mm. between 1914 and 1918. The trenches themselves, obviously there are different ways of building a trench 100 years ago and, and, and plus, I suppose, from one country to another. So Australians, I imagine, built their trenches quite different to the UK, I, I don't know. And the Germans also built their trenches very differently as well. Can you, can you set that up for me? In 1914, the world suddenly discovered itself at war again with a whole a brand new arsenal of weapons, weapons that are sighted to thousands of metres, weapons with destructive capabilities that, that 19th century armies could only dream of. And yet the tactics hadn't kept pace. Many of the generals had learnt their trade in wars against Indigenous communities. Uh, Horace Smith Dorian, who commanded the British cavalry on the Western Front in 1914 against machine guns and, and modern artillery and mechanised transport, his first battle was at Isandlwana in 1879 against the Zulus. Right. So these are the sorts of people who are leading men into action. They don't know how to deal with it. They are watching young soldiers die in vast numbers. Communications are very poor. Medical treatment is poor, and yet the weapons are deadly. Uh, they really are weapons of mass destruction. And so the knee-jerk reaction is to dig a hole, yeah. to get out of the way of shell fire and, and aimed rifle fire. Those holes that they dig join up until you get that line of trenches. And then the line of trenches evolves to create places where people can seek medical treatment, create command bunkers create machine gun positions, create deeper shelters. Then winter comes on, so they've got to think about drainage. You've got to think about how to get warm food forward to the troops. You've got to think about how to get the wounded out, ammunition in. All of these things come into the design of trenches. And so Australians step into this in the late July of 1916. They step into a battlefield on the Somme in which on the first day of that battle, 1st of July 1916, the British had lost 60,000 casualties. Over the next few weeks, the Australians lose another 23,000 on the Somme. So you know, these are areas where young soldiers are exposing themselves to enemy fire. They're usually attacking uphill because the Germans are holding the dominant high ground. They're leaving their trenches and trying to cross no man's land. So when the Australians eventually do capture the German trenches... They've got to try and turn them around. You know, you've got to adjust your... So, so they're facing one way and then they've got to turn them the other way, right. Correct. And by catch, capturing high ground, it means then that the Germans are going to fall back to the next place. So they fall back a long way mm. to a prepared trench line called the Hindenburg Line. It's a, it's a zigzag line of trenches, multiple layers. So you've got fighting trenches, followed by support trenches, followed by trenches that, that include storerooms and command bunkers and all that sort so of thing. Miles and miles of trenches. Miles and miles of trenches, absolutely. You know, it's a very complex network. 
people need to find their way around. They're like little cities, just a few metres beneath the ground. So there are signposts. You know, in some cases, when light railways are involved, there are turntables. Yeah. Uh, you know, the trenches need to be drained. Uh, so, so there are duckboards with with sumps underneath. The Germans tended to like to uh, defend from the high ground, so they're able to go deep. Mm-hmm. The Germans build. Trench- and they build permanently, don't they? They're really big ones with you know, obviously with you know bricks and concrete. Yeah, that's right. You can really the, the remaining German trenches are so solid that French and Belgian builders are now given permission to build over the top of them because they just can't shift them. I'm by design. I'm sitting in Hyde Park in Sydney, out the front of the Anzac War Memorial, and I'm joined by historian Brad Monera, and we're talking about, well, trenches, the design of trenches, the architecture of trenches. So they build the trenches to protect their soldiers, but they don't really protect their soldiers at the end of the day. There are many other kind of ensuing problems that occur because of the cold, because of the wet, because of the crowding nature, because of the, the rodents, for example. Everything's happening there. Yeah, look, it's a battlefield in transition between the sort of Napoleonic tactics of the 19th century and the introduction of 20th century weapons that range from chemical warfare to very high velocity small arms fire to absolutely devastating and very, very powerful artillery. So, you know, when you start to create a battlefield built around ingredients like that, you've got to protect your soldiers or they will die very quickly. You're fighting trenches are zigzagged every 10-15 feet you want to turn a corner because if a bursting shell lands in your trench or a grenade you need to have a corner to, to duck around. And so they're built by zigzag there's miles of them on either side of course the allies of course are much less permanent so the soldiers are basically just told, dig a trench. They're given design lessons, architects come in. I don't know, what's the deal here? Oh, look, it's a, it becomes a real science. Uh, you've got engineer and pioneer units working alongside infantrymen. They're advising on how to build trenches that uh, that are going to stay up in a, in a rain or a snowstorm or under shell fire. Uh, these trenches have to have extraordinary ballistic qualities because of the sort of, of, of ordnance that's being thrown at them. So they've got to protect them. Their occupants. It's essential they protect their occupants. So the British develop prefabricated curved iron roofs so that they can be shipped by light rail, put in place, buried under a mountain of sandbags, and suddenly there's a domed roof of very, very dense steel that's light enough to be carried but heavy enough to support sandbags so that the people sheltering underneath it can be protected during a barrage. You were saying before, Brad, that you you take students to visit these places and the Western Front, etc. I'm kind of curious what it looks like today. Where where are you taking? As we're walking through these spaces, are they original trenches? Do we build new ones in order to find a way of creating a memorial of World War One? Yeah, look, all of the above. I mean, it you know it seems like part of the high school curriculum is is getting a sense of how technology changed the nature of warfare. So one of the places that we visit is a an area that the Canadians purchased in the 1920s, a place called Beaumont Hamel, above the Ancre River, where a Canadian businessman bought 200 acres of that battlefield and just left it erode. It's an extraordinary place because it's 1916 trenches that have just slowly turning back into the landscape. You can see some rusted 
pieces of barbed wire spiral pegs. Uh, you can see the depressions where the trenches were, but by and large, the landscape is slowly reclaiming those trenches. Whereas when we go to, to Belgium and the blockhouses in Polygon Wood, where there are thousands of Australians buried, give us an opportunity to walk the ground and the battlefield in a very similar way to the way it was. Those blockhouses that have survived attempts to demolish them really do look like they did back in September 1917 when the, the 5th Australian Division attacked them. It's a very atmospheric place to visit and it really does have an extraordinary impact as significant as any museum could, that original and and surviving piece of 100-year-old battlefield. Brad Manera, it's really lovely to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for for taking the time. Historian Brad Manera there, who's also the executive manager of the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, Sydney, and we were sitting on the steps a bit further down in front of the pool, in front of that memorial. Well, this is by design. Still to come on the program along the banks of the Brisbane River is the Queensland Art Gallery, and do stay with us to see why architect Robin Gibson's gallery works a treat today. And on the subject of rivers, would you swim in the Yarra? about the Torrens or the Swan. Up soon, how one firm plans to get Londoners to swim in the Thames. You're with Fenella Kernerbone here on RN, and this is By Design. Michael McKenzie is coming up next on RN First Bite. Michael, you'd swim in the Yarra, wouldn't you? I was going to say, there's no way on God's green earth you'd get me in the Thames uh, without being knocked unconscious first. Then you could just you know, throw me in, yeah, but otherwise but, not. Well, we'll wait and see what happens. Maybe this this new idea, this pool, it's all about a pool, is, is the way to go. Uh, you've got something to do with wine on your program today, don't you? We're devoting the show to uh, a really a sort of a slice of social history, but mixed also with innovation and family succession, because I've got the 12 families, the 12 first families of Australian wine, and they're some of the great labels that we've all grown up with, mm-hmm. and they, they gather together as an alliance to talk about what they do next. And do you know they make more daughters than they do sons? <laughs> they do. <laughs> And there may be a reason for that. We're going Family to by design, well. by design. Okay, all that coming <laughs> yeah. up on RN First Bite. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. This is By Design. You are listening to RN. I'm on my boat on the old stone. No, that river take you anywhere that you want to go. Sail on the Ashley or the Yellowstone. But don't get caught in the mud when the tide is low. By design, sounds from an American duo. Uh, they are called Shovels and Rope, and the song is very apt because it is called Stono River Blues. It's from their album Swimming Time, which leads me to our next story Wild Swimming. 
This is a very old concept that London firm Studio Octopi aims to introduce back to the River Thames, where the public can actually swim safely in the river. In decades gone by, people swam in the Thames, but... Well, water pollution and other cultural shifts around swimming have seen more and more people swim indoor and at indoor facilities. Studio Octopi has designed a swimming pool that they hope will be built in the Thames in central London, and the water will be primarily filtered natural river water. Monocle 24's David Pleasant is with Studio Octopi's Chris Roma Lee and historian Caitlin Davies. My name is Chris Romali. I'm from uh, Studio Octopi. We're a firm of architects and we have uh, been developing the Thames baths, which are plans to reintroduce swimming in the Thames. We've got two options, one with river water, which is probably a few years off, and another one which is fresh water. You made a slight grimace when you talked about river water. We're looking at the water right now. We're right on the embankment. What are the challenges of trying to swim in the river right now and and create a swimming pool in the river? Um, The challenges are are quite steep. We've got a sewage system which is reaching the end of its lifespan. It was designed for a city of 4 million. We're now a city of 8 million. And so it's a combined system. So rainwater and sewage mixed together underneath our feet. And when they reach the top of the sewer, they have overflow points. And there are various outlets along the Thames. So a sharp heavy rainfall which hopefully we're not going to get in a moment can tip over the sewers and because the sewage is so high in the in the sewer it falls into the river what about the uh, more obviously savory option perhaps the non-river swimming option so that's based around rainwater tanks storing rainwater possibly topped up with with tap water fresh water and these are tanks which are set inside the pontoon and that would be still a wild experience. So we're not introducing chlorine to this. This is about being in touch with the river. So you're surrounded by reeds and hopefully protected from the wash of passing boats. I'm Caitlin Davis, and I've just finished writing a book called Downstream, a history and celebration of swimming in the River Thames that covers about 400 years. This seems like a really novel concept, but perhaps it isn't really. It's not something unheard of, swimming in the Thames. The river is here, so people have always got in it and swum. But really, I would say the heyday of sort of river racing would have been around the 1870s, where you had long-distance championships in the River Thames within central London. You had people coming from as far away as Australia to compete in them. You had teenage champions swimming 5, 10, 15, 20 miles. You had people diving off bridges and swimming, and just about half a mile upstream from where we're standing here at Temple Stairs, there was a floating bath that was opened in the 1870s. And so Chris's Octopi's idea is actually going back to something that we once had. So we're quite interested in how it stitches in with the city and we're standing along the North Bank, Victoria Embankment, which is effectively a four-lane highway with a small little strip for pedestrians and a lot of runners walking past. But We're kind of interested in how this might regenerate this area. Over the river, we've got the South Bank, which couldn't be any more congested. So as well as thinking about it as a swimming place, but also thinking about it as a civic space. And I know the City of London are looking at proposals for sorting out from here all the way to Tower Bridge in terms of the river walk, reconnecting it, creating parklands and settings there. So hopefully we can begin to see how the plan might slot into their proposals as well. Have you looked elsewhere for inspiration? I mean, if we look to perhaps Zurich 
or Copenhagen, they're very much cities at one with their waterways and, and their enjoyment of their rivers and coasts. When we first started this project, it kind of was born out of a visit, a holiday to Lake Zurich and the amazing facilities which surround that. So we don't see Temple Stairs as being the only one. We, we'd like to see a whole collection of them down the river and they're changing in design to suit the demographic which they're suited to. So here might be more to do with city swimming at lunchtime before going into work, perhaps a few tourists coming over from Tate Modern. But further down the river, it might be more suited for locals, might be more residential for more kids. So I think it's quite exciting. And, and that's what Zurich had. It had a whole series of bars along the edge of the lake, all of which were sorted out a different demographic of swimmers. There's also Plus Pools in New York, who are a little bit further ahead of us. They did a Kickstarter campaign, which raised, I think, a quarter million dollars to help them develop the design. And they're now putting stuff into the water as trials. So we're quite excited about that. And Caitlin, can you see it kind of being rekindled? Are you feeling people are interested enough? I would say in the last 12 to 15 years, we've come back to the Thames in numbers that we haven't seen for a very, very long time, since at least the sort of 50s or 60s when we were started to be encouraged to leave open water and go into indoor pools and then there were outright bans it was fears about pollution and yet the strange thing is is that when people were racing here in victorian times when the pollution was so severe it led to cholera outbreaks nobody mentions the state of the water or anybody getting sick i do want to add one more thing about the cleanliness of the water because i reckon there's something else going on i think the water is cleaner than we're all being told because i've seen fishermen along here catching stuff which they say they haven't caught stuff like this in 40 years freshwater shrimps in sack loads and freshwater shrimps require a lot of oxygenated water so the bacteria from the sewage is a problem but that can be stopped the quality of the water is generally good go on i dare you on your trip to london go for a swim or perhaps you can go for a swim in this pool when it opens chris romilly there and historian caitlin davies with monocle 24's david pleasant bring on the wild swimming i vote for that one now links to this project you can find of course as always on our website now it's time for today's in the field and we're off to brisbane to the queensland art gallery on south bank on the banks of the brisbane river and the celebrated gallery designed by Robin Gibson, who died earlier this year, was built in the 1970s. It was the first of a number of Robin Gibson-designed buildings on the South Bank Cultural Precinct, including the Performing Arts Centre, the Queensland Museum and the State Library. These four interlinked buildings are among the most celebrated examples of brutalist architecture in Australia. Reporter Jennifer Leake is with Brisbane architect and historian Don Watson at the Queensland Art Gallery. Well, one of the key features of the building is that it's a series of terraces building up from the river that are all heavily planted, which was kind of new, at least in Brisbane at that time, and used very extensively. But the other thing that it relates to is the larger landscape, When you stand further back than this, and in the CBD, for example, you can see how the building actually relates to the Taylor Range behind the city. And through the middle of it is what's called the Watermile. And it's really like an anna branch to the Brisbane River. It's a side channel in parallel. It's all made of cement, but it is quite a light cement. The cement used in doing all of the concrete, and there's a gigantic amount of concrete, is off-wide. Unlike grey, a lot of brutalist buildings, and this is generally classified as brutalist in lists of Australian brutalist buildings, the art gallery and the cultural centre generally is included, though Robin Gibson was never very comfortable with the terminology. But anyway, most of them have used grey cement, which ages fairly badly and looks gloomy and dirty and things, but the off-white cement here is reflective and lively and 
and does work extremely well. We're now standing on a walkway which overlooks one of the key features of Gibson's design, the water mall. And what you can hear is a number of dandelion fountains designed at the time by Robert Woodward in Sydney. On our left there's a sort of arc of glass which is a new entrance, a new back entrance into the gallery that was added more recently when they built the Gallery of Modern Art which is further upstream and it provides a link from the original QAG, the Queensland Art Gallery, through to the Gallery of Modern Art. This garden and water um, area that we're looking down on now, there is kind of a contrast to the facade outside that we saw before. I mean, that's a brutalist building. This one is pretty soft. Like, it's not aggressive like some of them are, where they really consciously made bold, aggressive forms. This is really nearly modernist, apart from its material usage. The Whale Mall, which is where we're standing now, uh, it's a huge undercover concrete walkway that connects the art gallery with the museum. Over our heads are large concrete skylights, but apart from that, it's solid-walled concrete. What's the function of this space? The whole building was designed as to be serviced from a central energy plant behind us and all the services for the complex are taken through under this mall across Melbourne Street and into the Performing Arts Centre. So it becomes crucial not only for people to circulate and to move across and through the building but also for distributing services. In front of us is a large shallow pool which takes up a good third of the main hall of the gallery. This pond actually connects up to the ponds outside in the water mall and at the end of this room you can see glass windows and through there we can see those dandelion fountains that I mentioned before. Yeah well it actually is like a stream running upstream. <laughs> it's going in the opposite direction to the river that's running parallel to it. The upper levels of the spaces around it are all open into the space and they characteristically have planter boxes all the way complete with these plants growing which in Gibson's office were called spillage planting and when the draftsman would finish elevational drawings for the building, he'd be called in to add the spillage planting. It was his particular touch to these drawings to finish them. And so that the extent to which planting is used is important, and it was kind of early on in its own way. How was the art gallery received at the time? Well, the gallery has always been hugely popular, and, and in fact most of the complex has worn very well. I mean, it's in remarkable nick for a building that's now 35 or so years old. And the interior cement is exactly the same as what, we, what we've got outside. The concrete here is remarkable and the effort they went to to achieve it, which wouldn't have been cheap entirely, but they were fantastically diligent in getting good concrete. It is very hard to get concrete of this quality. He was quite interested in abstracting the finish and the structure. He wanted to present clean finishes and not really reveal yeah. the work. Yeah, yeah, clean's a good word. He'd have liked the word clean. <laughs> I do love this building. Brisbane architect Don Watson there speaking with Jennifer Leake and the Robin Gibson designed Queensland Art Gallery is part of Brisbane's Open House Weekend in early October. Links on our website and don't forget to download our podcast. But that's the show for now. Our producer is Jan Ryan. Charlie McEwen is our sound engineer today. My name's Fenella Kernerbone. See you next time, but stay with us now for Michael McKenzie and RN First Bites.